Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Before I begin the show today, I want to say a few words about the massacre in Orlando, Florida. For me, a lesbian married to a Latina woman, it hit really, really close to home. And as someone who works with grief every day of my life, I knew that what I was experiencing was a profound and personal grief, as if I'd known the people in that club. It called out the mother in me, too, as if I, it could have been one of my own children. I flashed back to someone I dated at 19, whose sister had been murdered along with her girlfriend by her ex-husband. I remembered a trip I took up the coast around the same time when I feared for my life because we were threatened by a large group of men because a few of our group had a masculine look. And I thought about all the LGBT people who commit suicide or abuse substances because it's just so hard to live with the rejection of their family, friends, and community. And while so many things have improved for my community, some are worse. There's a difference between threats to each of us individually and absorbing the idea that 50 of us were murdered and many more injured at one time. It's an act inspiring true terror beyond some political idea of who or what contributed to it. Whenever there's progress, such as marriage equality, I celebrate and I fear What kinds of behavior might come as a backlash? When I attended a vigil Sunday night, I felt the hair raising on the back of my neck, fearful that one homophobic vigilante could come up behind us without us even knowing until it would be too late. In Sacramento this week, a minister at a Baptist church said that the shootings were a good thing, that he thought all LGBT people should be rounded up, put against a wall, and shot. This was his Sunday sermon. And as the daughter of a loving, supportive father, who was also a Baptist minister, I was stunned. I might have wondered if I somehow got the context wrong, but I saw the entire thing on video because it was put up on the church's website. Why am I talking about this on the show today? Because I want to encourage all of you to see how very personal this particular event is for LGBT people. Just as, for instance, the Charleston shootings were very personal for the people of color I know. I won't assume I know how anyone else is feeling exactly. But I believe based on many communications I'm receiving and witnessing on social media that the majority of the LGBT community are hurting right now. Please address homophobia when you see it. Please don't see this event as just some part of a terrorist attack, although it may be that too, whatever we may mean by that these days. Time will tell if the man was ordered to attack, was simply acting acting out his hatred or self-hatred, what his motives were. But please understand that it wasn't random. It was an attack against gay people, mostly men, almost all of color. That has an impact which we must counteract with love, compassion, and welcoming arms to grieve in. 
If you have LGBT people in your life, be that community, be those arms, be the allies that will help to protect and keep us. And remember, we're grieving. Thanks for listening to that. Today I'm talking with Hattie Bryant. Hattie's made a living since 1979 in adult education, and she's the author of the new book, I'll Have It My Way, Taking Control of -of End-of-Life Decisions. At the age of 27, she bought a franchise of leadership management, and for the next 15 years, she taught management, sales, and customer service in the conference conference rooms of small businesses and from convention platforms. Hattie's the creator of the Made for PBS television series, Small Business School. I think I need to go to that school, (laughs) which was filmed in 34 states and 150 cities. Sponsorship came from IBM, Verizon, Quest, Travelers, Dun & Bradstreet, AT&T, Mass Mutual, Microsoft, and others. It reached into most U.S. homes via some 300 PBS member stations from 1994 to 2012, and it was also translated into French, French, Spanish, and Arabic, and aired around the world through over a thousand affiliates of The Voice of America TV. Hattie's also the author of the book Beating the Odds, and in 1997 was given the Award of Excellence from the White House. Welcome, Hattie. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. I, I got I um, have so many thoughts about your book. It really stimulated a, little, a lot for me. So thank you for being with us today. Great. It's it's a pleasure and an honor. Thank Most you. People don't want to talk about grief, and you're the professional, so it's wonderful to be free to talk about it. You know, <laughs> absolutely. I know what you mean, and that's why I love doing this show because every week I talk to people who I've. I was just telling a friend yesterday, feel like my tribe, the tribe of yes. people who want to talk about this stuff right. and who make our lives <laughs> around it. <laughs> Such a relief, huh? Yeah, it is. And, and, it is. and like and like most people that I have on the show and that make their their work in this field. Um, you came to this work through your own personal experiences, and I wonder if we could just start with you sharing some of what, um, you know, awakened you to the reality that we're not prepared for the end right. of our lives. Yeah, well, when I turned 60 in 2010, I started thinking really hard about the fact that my mom and da- had died in um, 1990, and so and what happened in that situation, and it got my mind totally focused because. I was really key to her getting a peaceful death. And so I'm saying to myself, wait a minute, I have spent more life than I have left. I'm 60. Now who's going to do for me what I did for my mom? Mm -hmm. And so I just started thinking really hard about it and started researching. And I started by asking all my friends who are physicians a zillion questions. And then I ended up meeting a lot of incredible people who opened doors for me um, to interview the thought leaders in palliative medicine all over this country. And so as a result, um, we have the book, I'll Have It My Way. And I think, like you mentioned, I was on a personal journey to discover what what am I going to do with the end of my life? Who's going to be my Hattie? Who's going to do for me what I did for my mom? And as a result, I discovered that most of my cohort 
I'm 65 now. I'm on the front end of the baby boomers. You know, we're 51 to 70 years old right now, the baby boomers. Um, and so, yes, I'm, I'm well aware I'm about to turn 63. So <laughs> we're in the same in general cohort. area. Here. You're in my cohort. So what happened, so what happened with my mom is that, um, she ended up in the hospital with a, because she'd had a terrible stroke. And my, there were living wills, but no one ever saw them. My dad, who was a very, uh, tough man all of our life, tough, even some people thought, hard-hearted. He was melted down emotionally. He didn't think that my mother's living will needed to be, you know, consulted. Um, My brother, who's the oldest, he was melted down emotionally. My sister was melted down. And I'm coming in and out on a regular basis because I made a living then as a speaker and I had to go do my speeches and then come back. And so there was a little bit of advantage of being gone one or two days as opposed to sitting there through the entire um, moment-to-moment process because, Cheryl, what happened, the last time I saw her, I walked in the room and they had put in a feeding tube. And mm. that was horrifying to me. And um, it was Thanksgiving Day, and her primary care physician was making rounds, which I was very impressed by. But I had read the chart, and there was something on the chart they were giving her every day that I didn't understand. And uh, so I asked him, what is this? And he said it's an aspirant or uh, a nasal spray, um, and it is an artif- artificial hormone because the part of my mother's brain that was, you know, exploded from the stroke damaged the gland that created the natural hormone that teaches the kidneys how to function. And so they were replacing this with this artificial hormone. And at that moment, I said to him, wait a minute, <laughs> who said you could do that? Because mm. my mother is gone. You know, she's not, she's not there. She doesn't know us. Um, my mother's personhood had left. Yes. And I, I don't know that much about medicine, and I know a lot more now than I knew then, but back then I knew if someone's kidneys shut down, it is a very sweet death, actually. Mm-hmm. And so I said to him, you know what? You're not going to do this anymore. You know, I, I, I didn't write this in the book, but I told the doctor, you can put me in jail. I'm getting on this bed. You're not giving her that anymore. And he mm-hmm. said, oh, can you wait till tomorrow? And I said, why? He said, because the legal department from the hospital needed my dad to sign off on the withdrawal of that particular medicine. So I said, okay, you have till noon tomorrow. So the papers were done. My dad and under, my, everybody agreed, this isn't my mom. She's gone. And they're mm-hmm. keeping her alive with this one daily na- nasal spray. And so um, on the next day when we signed off the papers, a woman came into the room. I'd never seen this woman before. And she said, um, where's Hattie? I want to meet Hattie. And I thought, oh, gosh, I might be in trouble. And she took me in the hall, Cheryl, and she took my hands in her hands and she leaned into my face and she said, everybody needs a Hattie. Mm. Turns out she was a social worker who, you know, worked for years with people who are, families are in distress over what to do with their loved ones. And um, because I had, was able to see clearly what was going on with my mother, I was able to give her 
the opportunity to have a peaceful, sweet death. Otherwise, she would have gone to a nursing home with a feeding tube, just like Ariel Sharon, who lived for eight years on what I call a mattress grave. <laughs> so that's what I did. That's what you and did. And, is, and um, the way you expressed it in the book, I'd love it if before our break you could share this um, this section that, that starts, Our Health is Our Personal Responsibility. Oh, Sure. Oh, sure. I mean, the whole point was that at that time I realized it is our personal responsibility. And I was watching my mom who was passive in life and sweet and soft-spoken and my dad was always bossy and he had, he's the one who had the living wills done for the two of them. And I would have thought when she lost all cognitive functioning that he would have started thinking about what was in that living will, but he didn't. Instead, what I learned is I cannot depend on loved ones to follow through on my wishes, and I could not expect any healthcare professional to read my mind. I mean, so it's my job, and every listener that's listening, you've got to take the bull by the horn on this. It's our job to think ahead and figure out how to prevent many of the things that have become standard care for example, the feeding tube they put in that they didn't even ask anybody if they should do it. They just did it, you know. Yeah, yes. um, We want to keep that standard care at bay sometimes because that might not be the way we want our life to unfold at the end. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, my, my dad died after a, probably a stroke and then a fall and, yeah. um, you know, come to the hospital. He's all hooked up. And um, the healthcare providers were pretty straightforward, but then they were so surprised when we all decided very quickly, no, don't, uh, you know, unplug him. Right. Uh, and I think that's another side of the story that we're not prepared as consumers uh, sometimes for those moments so that we have our wits about us. Right, uh, <laughs> and, and exactly, and one of the big, to me, the denouement of my book is, or the big, huge aha insight is that we think our doctor is going to take care of us all the way to the end and do the, do the right thing for us. They're not allowed to, Cheryl. Yes. There's a law called the Patient Self-Determination Act, which I explain in detail. Or is, you know, we're try- I tried to write a short book so that people would read it, um, but I tried to explain it clearly that your doctor cannot decide for you what to do at the end of your life. That's why you have to have a proxy. So the whole, my whole passion now for the rest of my life is to ask anybody and everybody, who's your Hattie? Who's your proxy? Who's your surrogate? Because no matter what is written on papers for medical, and you're a healthcare professional and you understand this in depth and with all your work you've done with cancer and everything, that the healthcare professionals are obliged to do everything they know to do and they will just keep doing it and we're sucked into this medicalized process of death, which is very unfortunate and very artificial. And most of us don't want it, but we don't know how to stop it. And it's also, as I'd, I'd like to talk about more, um, we, we've run, run out of time for the, the part from the book, but I think you've captured it all, everything in that section already. Um, it's very nuanced, too, and I want to I get into that a little bit, you know, uh, because of what you're saying, uh, because okay. of, of, of um, 
the fact that we can't predict circumstance. And so I'd like to really focus, too, on how we pick uh, how we pick that proxy. What does that person need to have in order to make those quite sometimes very difficult decisions? So we'll talk about that when we get back. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief, Grief page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, etc., etc. And to find Hattie Bryant, you can go to www.I'llHaveItMyWay.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. I've been talking with Hattie Bryant, author of I'll Have It My Way, Taking Control of End-of-Life Decisions, a book about freedom and peace. Um, a, a, a substantial title with many important parts. Um, Hattie, before the break, we were just starting to talk about uh, how important it is, to how how you learned how important it is to have a very capable proxy, and we'll get right. into what that looks like, what makes someone effective at that job, um, and what a hard job it is, too. Um, right. But I wanted to put it in the frame of uh, what we're really talking about, which is our choices about how we want the end of our lives to look, and I wondered if you could could read that paragraph in your book that starts, Someday We Will Be Told That Our Life Is Ending. 
Sure, sure. This is the end of Chapter 1. And by the way, it's a very short book, so if, even if you don't like to read, you still need to get it. It's not that And long. it's very practical. A lot of it is things to do. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Which, it is. It's yeah. how-to. It's the last how-to book we all need. <laughs> so, someday we will be told that our life is ending. Listen hard, then step away and ask yourself, do I want to have the most days possible or to die gently? Do I want to go softly with care? Do I want to spend weeks, months, or maybe years living a medicalized life, which may be a prolonged dying process? Do I want my only appointments to be with doctors and lab technicians, or do I want to spend that time with family and friends, sharing and making memories? Letting go of desperate measures can give us more time to say thank you and I love you and untether us to do other things more meaningful to ourselves and those in our circles of family, friendship, and care. There's a lot that that stood out to me there in terms of... um, First of all, that, that that because I do work in cancer, and um, you're probably aware what a changing field that is, yes. it is it is often extremely difficult to determine what desperate measures are. Exactly. <laughs> and what they're not. Right. Uh, and and uh, at least in the Bay Area, the cancer field is getting much better at making some balance between quantity and quality. That is a question that's being asked. Uh, When my mom had pancreatic cancer at, you know, 84, um, her doctors were thinking, what can we do anything for you that won't uh, take away your quality? But even at that, she ended up, after a a short trial, dispensing with anything. Right. Uh, for these reasons you're talking about. But it can be really rough to determine that. And, of course, that's assuming we're uh, figuring it out. But uh, I think a big takeaway from your your book is that someone else might be figuring it out for you. Right, and, right, uh, right. Can we move into talking about what that person's quality should be? Uh, how how sure. do we find that that right person for that job. Sure. Well, the, the, let me just say this, and, and, and we'll go right to that. We'll lead, this will lead up to it. When my friends were asking me about what I was up to, and I said, oh, I'm trying to figure out how to get a, get a good death, and it took me five years, Cheryl, because I didn't come from health care, and I've been a healthy person all my life, so I haven't spent a lot of time engaged in health care. So it took me five years, and I do have the answer to how to get a good death. And I'm going to say this, a sweet, peaceful death will not come out of the natural flow of our lives in this 21st century. And we've got to do four things. And this this is the four four, chapters of the book. And we've got to acknowledge that we're going to die. We have to understand the limits of medicine. We have to discover that we've got choices. And fourth, communicate our wishes and choose a proxy. And you'd like me to focus on that choosing a proxy piece and that those other Not three the, the are, others, are kind of, The others, I hope, are coming into it, too. But, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the other three are what lead you up to the courage. And, what, and, and with each chapter, you flip to the back of the book.
book, as you know, and answer some questions. So I'm taking people slowly through these four steps, or they can go as fast as they can write or go as slowly as they would like to write. But I take them gently through this so it's not so abrasive and you've got time to think about it and analyze, well, what's really holding me back? What's really so hard about dying? Um, So, But the reason the proxy is so important is what you've already mentioned, and that's the complexity of healthcare and the number of choices there are for interventions and opportunities for research, being part of research and all that sort of thing. And a lot of people listening may have done a living will like my father did for him, for himself and for my mother. But the problem with most living will verbiage is it, they say if it's been determined that I'm terminal or if it's been determined that I'm incurable. And when I, when I researched these two words and talked to the thought leaders in geriatric, you know, the geriatricians and the palliative um, care experts, more than one said, we don't know what terminal is and we don't know what incurable is. So those are words right. in the living will that are impossible. They have no meaning. So this led me to turn the, the whole document upside down and say, I don't care what my what my uh, what the medical prognosis is, what I care about, and you'll remember from the book, you've read it, right. what I care about is how I live my life. So the first thing that will embolden your proxy, and we'll talk about how to choose your proxy, but the first thing you need to do to give them confidence and clarity is decide how do you want to live your life. And in the book, you know, if I can't chew and swallow food, I do, do not want any more aggressive care. If I can't toilet myself, I, and this is me, Hattie, and the, 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 the beauty of the book is the title, I'll Have It My Way, and the workbook takes you through questions, so you determine yourself, your functionality, uh, without which you do not want to be here. So once you've defined that, for my surrogate or my proxy, it's pretty easy. She knows if I can't toilet myself and I get pneumonia, I have a DNH. Do not hospitalize. Yes. That's simple. If I can't swallow, if I can't recognize my friends and carry on a conversation, if I can't read and write email, these are my baseline quality functionalities. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> I am not and, kidding. And I'm assuming that, that, uh, that implied in that or, or stated in that is uh, that that is not a temporary condition. Would that be correct? Absolutely, absolutely. This is correct, correct, correct. And, and, and if you you can you can see in the back of the book that that's clear. You know, I mean, right. if I dropped on the floor right now, of course my husband will call nine one one and I'll go to the hospital because I'm fully functioning right now. But if I'm bed if I'm bedridden and can't toilet myself anymore, you know. And I get that's pneumonia. The that's yeah. that is the perfect. That's the perfect suite as it used to be called the old man's friend pneumonia. But today, Absolutely. thousands and thousands of elders are run into the hospital, stabilized with their pneumonia, to come back to live a life that they didn't like living in the first place. But they didn't make it clear. They haven't thought through these things about what they want. So people just keep taking care of them. And and that's what we do. I mean, we can't help but take care of people. You know, we have 
compassion. <laughs> we just you have know, to broaden the definition a little. I'm thinking very much of a, a dear, dear friend of mine who had um, a pretty steep cognitive decline and kept going to the emergency. Finally, he and his wife determined no more emergency. Uh, you know, it's time to just go gently. Relax. Relax. And, <laughs> and uh, the problem came because she was quite a small person. He wasn't that big, but bigger than her. And he would fall. And then the only way to get him up would be to, to call 911. Are you talking um, about Katie Butler? No, but it's similar. I've interviewed her. Yeah. yeah now, this is a dear story. friend of mine. And yeah. so uh, <laughs> my friends started, um, they lived, their house was down some stairs. And she would meet the um, the 911 EMTs uh, up at the top and say, I'm not letting you in unless you agree to only put him back in bed. Perfect. <laughs> that worked pretty well, actually. <laughs> but, right. And, and they, they know, had all the documents, but, you know, the exactly. EMTs don't want to feel they didn't do the right thing, you well, know. They're required by law. Exactly. Unless that, that post is, you know, the post form is posted somewhere and they can see no, resu- no, no, res- no res- resuscitation. But, but the, the thing the- is, they had done that. And still, he fell once, and they took him b- because they said, we don't want to be responsible. Right. And they, so, the, they you know, it's very them. hard to get your, your wishes honored, actually. It is very hard. And that's why, you know, we all, you, me, everybody we know in this world needs to stand up at a tall mountain and shout as loud as we can. Everybody has to wake up. And the thing is, when you call 911 and you arrive in a hospital, or even even when, to, to your friend's point, who didn't, who said to them, you can come here only if you'll put him in the bed, if, they're, if they get him into their vehicle, they are responsible to do everything. And, and the, the tricky thing is, when we call 911, um, we're giving healthcare professionals permission to do what they do. Sure. I mean, if, so, so don't call 911, you know, just call your friend, your proxy, your surrogate, your, your family, your physician that's going to give you pain, pain mitigation, dial hospice, whatever, you know, but once you get in the 911 system, it's almost impossible to get out, and that's when you need a really tough proxy, you know, if you're already wired up and tubed up with everything it's hard to get undone <laughs> it is very hard yeah and i was i was um i was laughing at one point of your book because you were saying if you have more than one child uh, i can't remember exactly how you put it but you said pick the one who's fierce basically Right, because uh, I said, no, pick the obnoxious child, the one who won't take no for an answer, and that would be me. That I was the baby child that would never have been named by my mother as her proxy back then. My father was her proxy, but like I said, he melted down. He didn't even talk to the doctors. He assumed because they were doing things, and this is a huge problem. We assume because doctors are swirling around and doing things that, that what they're doing is going to be healing and we're going to bring our loved one home. Right. And, and uh, I think rightly, possibly, at least at younger ages, 
doing uh, doing and then asking questions makes sense of in an emergency situation. It even makes sense if you if there's no uh, that the, there's. I'm not going to be down on the healthcare professionals. I respect and admire everyone that works so hard to do their best for us. It's our it's our responsibility to correct, you know, if they're doing too much. Just like I stood up for my mom, our proxy has to stand up. There are too many there are too many um, variables. The healthcare people have to do what they're doing. I'm I'm not blaming them. Now, what I do have problems with is when the proxy speaks up, and the physicians. Uh, don't respect that, you know, when, when you have to argue or fight or it's like, come on, <laughs> excuse me, right. who are you? Um, this is my loved which one. Do, which does happen quite frequently. Oh, yeah, uh, there's a story in yeah. the book. I don't even think I put the, uh, I don't even think I put the argument piece in because I just don't want to, I don't want to be down on physicians in my book. I really don't. No, 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 they're in a tough position. I agree. Yeah, yeah, they're rock in a hard place. But one piece that I, I don't mind saying on the radio at all is keep in mind that a physician does things to you that they don't have to live with. Right. They don't have to live with an LVAD, a left ventricular assist device that has to be plugged into the wall or to a battery. You can't take a full shower. You can't go fishing. You can't drive a car. But they, they want to put it in. They want to put it in so, you, you're, so, your, so your blood pumps, but they don't have to live with that. Mm. You see, and so they're excited about the technology and, and they, it's their life and it's their world and they're thrilled for you and they want to keep you alive and, and it's, it's not cynical. It's, it's, it's because they believe in the forward march of medicine, but they don't have to live what they do to us. They don't have to live with the repercussions of these, you know, you talk about, you're, you're the cancer absolutely. expert, not me, but just yeah, the toxicity absolutely. of the drugs then- that are dumped into us. And then on the other hand, um, some of the best years of my life were uh, living with someone with a very virulent form of cancer who, at the very start, when she was given six months, we might have said, well, let's just have a nice, quiet six months. And all but the last six months of the next eight and a half years <laughs> were, good, yeah. were incredibly good years. Well, uh, and, and how old was she, Cheryl, when she when she got cancer? She was, she was thirty-seven. Yeah. Okay. You know, and the thing is, I, people might think I'm being cavalier or flippant, but I'm sixty-five. You know, and I'll I'll decide when I get a diagnosis. I'll decide what I want to do with it. But my inclination sure. right now is I'm not going to do a lot of heavy-duty stuff. I might do the simple stuff and see what happens. You know, but I'm sixty-five. If I was thirty-two, I would have done everything she did. Of course. You give it a go. I mean, you're young. <laughs> you have a lot of time to, to make <laughs> to make a different decision, I suppose. But yeah. I'm. But I bring and, her up. And, you know, I, I I bring her up not just because of the differences of being a young person with with a uh, quote unquote terminal diagnosis, but I know a lot of older people who make various choices. But I think. It really makes a difference from my view, whether they're um, death of, death avoiding or life affirming. 
There you go. Exactly. 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 And <laughs> I hate to say this. There and mm-hmm. there's a little there's a, a soft thread of this in in the book, and that is we have to grow ourselves up. I'm 65. I'm not 35, and we've used medicine in so many ways to prop ourselves up, and we just we're not going to live forever. And we do. We I want to be a wise, gentle, sweet old soul. I don't want to be like trying to act, you know, trying to get what I want act like a teenager, I demand to be cured, you have to do this, zooming all over the world, trying to find the best doctor or the best hospital because I demand to live. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's something sort of unbecoming about us older folks demanding to be kept alive and out of selfishness, you know? Uh, and how does that, and there's a section, if you looked at the workbook, there's a section where you, I ask you to ask yourself the questions about the impact your decisions are make, will make on the people that you love. Because um, right. if you demand, I want everything done, everything done, everything done, everything done, what does that everything get, being done to you do to the people who love you? Uh, it puts you in the center of attention when they need to be the center of attention. You know what I'm saying? It's just I, I'm looking at. It's this very issue. nuanced. Let's let's pick that up when we get back, okay? Because um, it's time for our second break. And, and listeners, go ahead and and go to my website or the Voice America Good Grief page. My website is www.weatheringgrief.com, and to find. Um, to find Hattie Bryant, go to I'llHaveItMyWay.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Hattie Bryant, author of I'll Have It My Way about end-of-life decision-making. And we were talking before the break, Hattie, about kind of growing up, you know, uh, and and facing facts that life ends and looking at what uh, imprint, in a way, we want to leave on the people we love with the way that we die. 
Uh, and I realize that's, um, so if I take myself, I may, I may know too much at this point. I don't know. <laughs> but um, if I take myself, uh, my wife and I were talking through these decisions and how, what we wanted and everything. And I realized that I was, I was, adding to everything I wanted um, unless the kids need a little more time to get ready. Unless the kids, you know, every single decision for myself, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of death. I mean, I think some parts of it will be hard, but, you know, I'm, I've done hard. Um, but, but I am uh, so concerned with how that experience lives in them when I'm dead. You just said... Uh, keep talking, basically. Everyone keep talking. Now, I work in this in this field. I, I bring it up all the time with everybody. My family is very likely to say, we don't want to talk about it, which is so ironic. Right, because you're <laughs> and in it every day. Yeah. I, all the time. And, you know, I'll go out to dinner with my wife and she'll say, okay, you've had, you've had five minutes on, on death. I just think I'm talking about my work. You've had five minutes on death. That's enough, you know. Um, so, <laughs> so, well, and that may you know, be and if I'm having that difficulty, everyone in my family has experienced death. They're realistic about it, etc. They don't want to talk about it. So if I'm having that trouble, I'm imagining a lot of people are having that trouble. Right, right. And I think the best thing for all of us to do, of course, I'm, I'm, um, biased, but I fill out the back of my book and, and when you're not able to speak for yourself because you're too tired or sick or exhausted or whatever, people can read what you've written and you'll have comfort in that because you've prepared them with what you've written. You've told them you love them. You've told them what you're thankful for about them, etc. You've left some notes about your legacy and then, but you've also said these, these are the functionalities that are important to me, and if I can't have these, then leave me alone, let me go, keep me comfortable. And they don't feel guilty anymore. And that's when we come around to this proxy piece. If you're really clear, Cheryl, you could be my proxy. I've known you for 45 minutes because you look at the back of the book and can see exactly what I want. It's not that hard when the person who's dying or frail has left proper, clear instructions. You'd be able, you could say to the physician, is Hattie going to be able to toilet herself when you get done doing what you're doing to her? Mm-hmm. And they would say, hmm, probably not. All right, well then, you need to calm down. We need to move her over to palliative care, comfort care. She doesn't want this. And, yes. Um, you see? Well, and yes, I do. And one, one thing that does need to change in healthcare, even in a very... Uh, uh, hospice-aware uh, hosp- um, hospital system that my mom was a part of. When she said, "We're not going to do this anymore. I'm I'm suspending treatment," which was a very good decision, I thought. Um, yes. No one said, "Let me let me get you talking to a hospice person," and so then it left us. Uh, jumbling around with that, me kind of knowing that she knows about it and everything, and her not, suge- you know, it it it's more difficult in families. Smooth, there was not a smooth handoff. Not <laughs> a, a smooth, smooth handoff. Not a smooth transition. And that's sad. And that's what so much work is being done now in hospitals. I only know this because of all the interviews I've done for the book and people I'm 
calling on right now to use the book, but it, the wor- work is being done. But but the big work, and you used the word earlier in the conversation. Are you there? Yes. Okay, I hear beeps. Um, you <laughs> use the word consumer. We are consumers of healthcare, and we need to be smarter about our consumption and the decisions we make about what we want to consume. Think of it as buying a car, and you analyze all the parts and pieces. You think about the things you want in a car, and you go to, to um, consumer report, right? And you analyze and blah, 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 blah. So it's the same thing with when someone says, I'm going to give you an intervention, um, uh, you know, some sort of medical intervention, um, you look at it like, well, hey, consumer report. You know, how much time is this going to cost me? How much money is it going to cost me? How much time of my, for my family? You see what I'm saying? That, I do. That um, um, it's, we're not thinking clearly. We, we don't think, we think our doctors and you, professional like you, you're just going to take care of us all the way to the end and we'll get what we want. No, no, no. That is not going to happen. So this proxy is key. And so let's talk a little bit about why you know, the qualities uh, of a proxy. Um, I list them in the book. It can be any, anyone who's willing to speak for you. It doesn't have to be family, um, someone who will sit with you and read what you write. If you're using my book or, or Five Wishes or some other tool, you need to put it in writing. And they need to be able to separate their personal desires for you uh, from your desires for you, they may want you to live forever, but you don't want to live if you can't toilet yourself. Or that's me. I don't want to live if I can't toilet myself. Okay, but if this, so your proxy has to respect your wishes. Right. They need to be able to communicate with your with your healthcare providers, and it doesn't have to be in person. You, they can email and text with a physician, and they have to be young enough and healthy enough to be around in the future, someone you trust with your life, and someone who's calm and, and in, ter- in terms of can manage conflicts. I don't know if you remember this quote. One of the physicians I interviewed said, when someone's dying, there's no such thing as a functional family. And so this person has to be able to stand up to family members who may not agree with what you wrote and um, is respected by family members because other family members can swirl in. But if this proxy is named and your physician knows this is your name proxy, then all those other people, you've just kind of taken the wind out of the sails of anybody want, that wants to complain or gripe or moan or groan. I'm sorry, this is what Hattie says she wants. And my proxy is Fallon Curtis, as you read in the book. She's 34 years younger than me. She fits all these qualities. She can also listen to the facts presented and make a rational decision. And so those are the qualities listed in the book. And, but it's not, it, it is hard because it, I don't recommend spouses and children because of the emotion. I'm not saying they can't do it. Right. Problems with it because of the baggage of the emotion. Um, well, I would say I would say it's probably important. For instance, you t- you uh, there was a very chilling story in your book about um, a uh, basically a a wife who punished right. her husband for perceived right. mad, uh, uh, bad deeds in life. Right. Uh, right. And so I guess I added to, I, I mentally added to the list, make sure your business is clean with the person you're picking. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, and, make sure yes. that you have worked out your relationship and it's strong and, and they have heard clearly, I will not, there, there's no blame for whatever decision you make. 
Exactly. Uh, you're going to have to do the best you can on the ground, and that's great with me, you know. <laughs> right. And on that point, on that, to give more protection to your chosen single proxy, it's not a committee, it's not all my kids, it's not all my family, it is a chosen single proxy. To give permission to them and courage to them, you give this cop, you give copies of this document, 75 people in my family have copies of my document, know that Fallon Curtis is in charge. 75 people. Wow, you no have a big one, family. No one can bamboozle her or sideswipe her because there are too many other people that know exactly what she's supposed to do. So you protect yourself by sharing this information with as many people as you can. And... and, and- being at the same time, uh, the the thing that I've I've uh, come to for me, uh, you know, I've read several books like this now, of course, uh, but I there's something that happened when I read yours about be very specific and nuanced. That that's what would be more important to me, you know. Yeah. In other words, this is what I think I want. If there's a is if there's a Good chance of a return to health, you can make exceptions or something like that. Well, I mean, and that's where you have this logical person who listens to a physician. You know the physicians are going to argue to do everything to you, Cheryl. They're going to say, if I was your proxy, they'd say, well, Hattie, you know, we can do this, 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 and this, and this to Cheryl, and we think that'll really help her. Well, I'm not going to shut that off and say no. I'm going to think it through and say, okay, these are really key pieces So maybe we'll try this for six weeks, and if she can't get up and toilet herself in six weeks, then we'll change directions. Do you see what I'm saying? Exactly. I I absolutely do. And and I think that's uh, something that can be stated, but I think a lot of people kind of fill in the major blanks and pick a person, but don't give it very deep thought. Uh, well, real, the, what, yeah. what does make a good life for us? That's that's a hard question to answer, just psychologically. Not not only in terms of end of life, but in terms of of living itself, which of course is a major theme of your book, living until you die and living fully all the way to the end. And it's not about death; it's about living all the way to the end. Because the default today is death in the ICU, and that's what I'm trying to avoid for myself, and trying to teach any reader, anybody who wants to get the get the to live all the way to the end and not be stuck in all those, you know, in the matrix of healthcare for years or months or weeks when they could be on their own pillow or on a cruise or with their dog on their bed, you know, eating ice cream all day, which is something they might rather do than be in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So the the big thing is we're up against a $2.9 trillion medical industrial complex that wants to do everything in the whole world to keep us alive. And alive and- to them is not necessarily what life to you and me might be so we want to define our, our life that's, yeah. that's where we're going to have to leave it for today okay. but that's a Great. very good place to end thanks Great. so much for being with me Hattie and, and listeners you. you can find Hattie Bryant at www.illhaveitmyway.com next week I'll welcome Azim Kamisa his book From Murder to Forgiveness describes his decision to forgive the boy who, who murdered his only son This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.